Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. On today's broadcast, payers, providers, and hospitals are squaring off on the issue of surprise medical billing. Standing by to report our lead story this morning is former CMS official Matthew Albright. And speaking of fighting, Intermountain Health is giving up their fight over a False Claims Act lawsuit. With details will be famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. She's going to be calling in live from London. Social determinants of health are now a hot-button issue with consultants, but Alan Fink-Sandwick is here to explain why this could be problematic. Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel has the RAC report, and healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hertz, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday rounds is sponsored by R1 RCM. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. As Chuck reported in last week's RAC Monitor e-news, Noridian has released a proposed LCD for vertebroplasty and kyphoplasty. For those who are unaware, the efficacy of kyphoplasty and vertebroplasty has recently been called into question because of studies which demonstrated that if you simply sedate patients, inject some anesthetic in their back, and tell them they had a kyphoplasty, their pain improves as much as, that, as if they actually had the procedure done. Now, Noridian's proposed decision seems to rely heavily on a care pathway that was published by a multidisciplinary group of experts. But this expert panel consisted of orthopedists, neurosurgeons, interventional radiologists, and pain specialists. What do they have in common? They represent the specialties that perform these procedures. The panel reviewed the literature, but unlike most guidelines that base recommendations on the strength of the evidence, this care pathway simply asked the panel members for their personal opinion on the effectiveness of the procedure. In addition, the proposed coverage does not require any trial of conservative care. The patient simply needs to rate their pain at eight or greater, and the procedure can be performed. They can proceed without even trying a single dose of pain medication. It'll be really interesting to see what the final LCD says. Now, last week also marked the release of a very provocative viewpoint in a prominent medical journal, calling for us to step back and take a closer look at the use of robotic surgery. This was partially inspired by a large study which demonstrated that robotic surgery for cervical cancer was associated with a shorter overall survival. And if that does not worry you, the authors also note that, historically, surgeons who completed proctoring in as few as two robotic-assisted surgical procedures could then integrate the robotic surgery into their practice. Yet the learning curve can take 20 to 50 procedures to develop full competence. Now, would I agree to have robotic surgery from a surgeon who has only done the surgery five times? Certainly not. Would I be told that I was number five? Probably not. Now, this article is available to you on the Dr. Hirsch material tab on your screen. Get it, read it, and share it, please. Now, 
switching topics, are all of you ready for the switchover in the QIOs on June 8th? Um, if you're not, I'm not surprised. CMS has not released one single notice about this switch. Um, KeyPro has placed a notice on its homepage um, a few weeks ago, but Levanta had nothing on their homepage until four days ago when I alerted them. Hospitals have to sign a new memorandum of agreement, which brings up another mess. KeyPro says the new MOA cannot be signed until June 8th, but Levanta has the new MOA on their website to download and sign as soon as possible. And in keeping with CMS's reputation for changing the name of things, the QAOs will be going from covering areas to regions. And finally, June 8th is a Saturday. Shouldn't the switch happen on a day that the QAOs will be fully staffed to handle all the inevitable questions? That's all for me, Chuck. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report, here is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, Chuck. Happy Monday. We're going to talk targeted probe and educate audits again. I received quite a bit of feedback on my Rack Monitor article regarding Medicare TPE audits being a wolf in sheep's clothing. So I decided to delve into more depth by contacting some providers who reached out to me to discuss specific issues. My intent is to shed the sheep's clothing and show the big pointy ears, big round eyes, and big sharp teeth that the Macs will hear, see, and eat you with the Medicare TPE audits. I cannot stress enough the importance of being proactive. The very first way to rebut a TPE audit is to challenge the reason you are selected, which includes challenging the data supporting the reason that you are chosen. A poor TPE audit can easily result in termination of your Medicare contract, so it's imperative that you are prepared and appeal adverse results. 42 CFR section 424.535 dictates revocation of enrollment in the Medicare program. Failing an audit process, even if the results are incorrect, can result in termination of your Medicare contract. The TPE process begins by the MAC selecting a CPT code and a provider. This selection process is a mystery. How the MACs decide to audit sleep studies versus chemotherapy administration, or a 93675 versus a 93674, remains to be seen. According to one healthcare provider, which has undergone multiple TPE audits and has Noridian Healthcare Solutions as its MAC, informed me that at times they may have four to five TPE audits going at the same time. CMS has touted that TPE audits do not overlap claims or cause the providers to undergo redundant audits. But if a provider bills numerous CPT codes, the provider can undergo multiple TPE audits concurrently. This is clearly not the intent of the TPE audits in general. The provider has questioned ad nauseum the data analysis that alerted Noridian to assign the TPE to them in the first place. Supposedly, MACs target providers with claim activity that contractors deem as unusual. The usual TPE notification letter contains a six-month comparison table purportedly demonstrating the paid amount and the number of claims for a particular CPT code, 
but its accuracy is questionable. This particular writer ran its own internal reports against the, the chart that was given to them. And regardless of how many different ways this provider recalculated the numbers, the provider could not figure out the numbers the TPE letter was alleging they were building, billing. But because of the short turnaround deadlines and harsh penalties for failing to adhere to these deadlines, this provider has been unable to challenge the MAX comparison table. The MAX have yet to share its algorithm or computer program used to govern either which provider to target or what CPT code to target or how it determines the paid amount and the number of claims. Pushing back on the original data on which the MAX supposedly relied upon to initially target you is an important way to defend yourself against a TPE audit. Unmask the wolf from the beginning. If you can debunk the reason for the TPE audit in the first place, the rest of the findings of the TPE audit cannot be valid. It's the classic fruit of the poisonous tree argument. Yet according to a quick search on Westlaw, no provider has appealed the reason for selection yet. For even more ways to defend against the TPE audit, please see my upcoming article on Thursday on Rack Monitor, Medicare TPE Audits, A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing, Part Due. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group, and you can read her reporting on this very important subject in this week's Rack Monitor News. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Mary Inman calling in live from London, Alan Pink-Samnick, and our special guest, Matthew Albright. This is Monday, it's June 3rd, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. 600 of your peers in health information management are planning to come together at the 2019 Clinical Coding Meeting. Will you join them? Hear presentations from industry expert speakers on CDI, Revenue Cycle, Professional Services, Facility Services, 2020 Coding Updates, Compliance, Auditing, and Innovation. Collaborate during networking lunches and walk away with new knowledge and solutions. All advanced full registrations receive a free AHIMA Gold Standard 2020 ICD-10 codebook of their choosing. Save up to $100 by registering before July 15th. Don't wait. Register now. Visit ahima.org slash clinical coding for more information. Thanks, Clark. And by the way, there's a very important webcast coming your way this Thursday. The webcast is by using the right patient notification form at the right time with the right information that could save your hospital from fines and recruitment, as you're going to learn during this exclusive Rack Monitor webcast led by Dr. Ronald Hirsch. It's coming your way, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, and you can save 40 bucks when you use the coupon code MONDAY. And now for the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. David, what could possibly be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. Today, I'm going to talk about the risk that a person accused of wrongdoing will lash out and accuse others of improper conduct. So during past broadcasts, I have mentioned the benefit of asking employees to sign a certification that either confirms that the employee is not aware of any compliance issues or lists all of the compliance concerns. Now, I recommend getting this form signed at least annually, but semi-annually or quarterly is far better. Here's a story that illustrates why this practice is so valuable. I'm going to sanitize the facts a bit to protect client confidentiality, but they're not important. 
A physician observed a colleague and a fellow member of the group engaging in improper conduct in the hospital. The conduct wasn't egregious, but the physician was documenting some practices inaccurately. So the compliance officer goes to meet with the offending physician and discuss the problematic event. In the meeting, the physician becomes extremely defensive. While acknowledging the truth of the allegations, the physician comes up with many different excuses justifying the improper documentation. Then, the physician does what many people do when criticized. He lashes out. He says, oh yeah, well everyone in this group commits fraud too. He then lists examples of the behavior he asserts he has observed. So the doctor claims that for years his colleagues have been engaged in a laundry list of improper activities. This could have been a really bad day for the compliance officer. But fortunately, about 15 years ago, I did compliance training for this client, and they started using the certification form. We have more than a decade's worth of certifications from this physician where he states he's not aware of any compliance issues. That changes the entire dynamic of this conversation because his allegations spell span well into the past. Now, I want to emphasize the fact that the physician never reported concerns doesn't mean we get to ignore his new claims. You always want to take compliance allegations seriously. Even if his motivation is totally vindictive, if his concerns are valid, we're going to need to address them. But we need to understand which of his statements are accurate and which are false. So we're going to sit down with this doctor and ask him to detail exactly what he saw and when he saw it. We'll thank him for reporting his concerns, but as part of that conversation, we're going to emphasize he shouldn't be waiting to report concerns until a time when he's angry. Basically, clinics are like an airport. Uh, if we expect employees to say something when they see something. In writing, we're going to explain to this employee that it's problematic to falsely certify that there are no compliance issues if the employee believes that there are, in fact, problems. But it's also problematic to falsely accuse people of wrongdoing. I don't know which of those occurred, but one of those two things has happened here. You know, I'm certain that this is a situation where an effective compliance program is going to pay some HR dividends. If you'd like a sample certification form, like the one this clinic has been using, drop me an email. Whether you use that form or one of your own creation, if one of your employees starts quoting Blondie, asserting that one way or another, they're going to get you, get you, get you, the form will give you the ability to give them the slip. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David's a shareholder of the law firm McFedrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Salt Lake City-based Intermountain Health is giving up their fight over a False Claims Act lawsuit. Calling in live from London at this hour is famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Chuck. Last month, several media outlets, including Health Leaders and Law 360, reported that Intermountain Health, a Utah-based health system that operates 22 hospitals and dozens of clinics, urgent care facilities, a home health agency, and a health plan, has reportedly settled a whistleblower lawsuit alleging that it had violated the False Claims Act by billing Medicare and Medicaid for medically unnecessary procedures. 
Although the details of the settlement are not yet known, the fact that the case has settled is in itself significant because it means that Intermountain has abandoned its petition to the U.S. Supreme Court in which it sought to challenge the constitutionality of the whistleblower provisions of the False Claims Act. As we have previously reported on Monitor Monday, the case was brought by whistleblower Dr. Gerald Palukov, a former cardiologist at one of Intermountain's hospitals, in 2012, in which he accused Intermountain of performing medically unnecessary cardiac and vascular procedures, which would not be reimbursable by Medicare and Medicaid. Dr. Palooka filed his case under the False Claims Act, a federal law that allows private citizen whistleblowers to report fraud and misconduct in government contracts and programs with the promise of a potential reward of, up to, of between 15 and 30 percent of the government recovery. Specifically, Intermountain was accused of executing unnecessary patent foramen oval procedures, which are meant to cure a certain birth defect that causes a hole between two heart chambers. According to Dr. Palukov, a single Intermountain doctor billed for 861 such procedures in 2010. As a frame of reference, the Cleveland Clinic billed for 37 during the same period. Since its filing in 2012, the case has taken an interesting procedural route through the federal courts. In 2017, the district court granted Intermountain's motion to dismiss Dr. Palukov's case, citing Palukov's inability to objectively prove that the alleged false claims were indeed unnecessary. The district court cited a lack of CMS guidance in the area and the need for professional medical judgment to evaluate the necessity of the procedures at issue. In 2018, Dr. Palukov appealed the decision to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals with the Department of Justice filing a friend of the court brief supporting his position. In 2018, the Tenth, Cir the Tenth Circuit overturned the district court's decision and revived Dr. Palukov's claims, holding that healthcare providers cannot hide behind their professional opinions as a method to avoid False Claims Act liability, and noted that medically unnecessary billing is punishable under the False Claims Act. Intermountain responded by appealing the Tenth Circuit's ruling to the United States Supreme Court, asking the court to clarify the level of particularity with which fraud must be pled, and challenging the constitutionality of the FCA of the False Claims Act's key TAM or whistleblower provisions, the provisions that allow private persons to bring suit on behalf of the government. The reported settlement of this case which has been confirmed by lawyers for both Dr. Palukov and Intermountain, has occurred before the U.S. Supreme Court was able to consider Intermountain's petition, which is now moot. Dr. Palukov's whistleblower case against the remaining two defendants, St. Mark's Hospital and Dr. Sherman Sorensen, the doctor alleged to have performed the unnecessary heart procedures, continues in the district court. We will keep Monitor Monday listeners apprised as we learn more about the specifics of the Intermountain Settlement and the remaining case as it moves forward. However, for now, whistleblowers can breathe a sigh of relief as the latest challenges to the constitutionality of the False Claims Act have fallen away. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary. Calling in live from London with Spain whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the London office of Constantine Cannon. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, social determinants of health are now a hot-button issue with consultants. But Alan Fink-Samnick is here now to explain why this could be problematic. Good morning, Alan. Alan, are we seeing a bandwagon effect here? Chuck, good morning. Well, that bandwagon needs to be more of an arc. 
All consultants strive to be thorough and stay current. Their livelihood depends on it, but this is no easy feat with the social determinants. Their impact is massive, responsible for over 50% of readmissions, $35 million in excess care costs, 4.3 million preventable visits to emergency departments, and contributing to national health expenditures of $3.6 trillion for 2016 alone. While the social determinants boom yields opportunities for consultants, there's a pitfall. Consultants are responsible for quickly assessing and curing the ailments of any organization that hires them, whether length of stay, revenue cycle management, readmissions, or workforce efficiency. As a result, consultants can be pushed for quick fixes. Effective social determinants mastery involves far more than a quick fix. Key knowledge about the landscape and how to maneuver it is required. So here are my seven essential points for social determinants mastery. First, well, reimbursement is vital. Know how to use and apply the relevant ICD-10 CM codes, C55 through 65. You knew I'd mention those at least once. The T and the Z codes coming up for human trafficking, plus future codes to address food, housing, transportation, payment for meds, utilities, and caregiver needs. Assure that the interprofessional documentation justifies use of those ICD-10 codes as well, and know how your interprofessional teams can support revenue cycle management, for example, using coding coalitions with key players. Next, be knowledgeable of new roles and tier who is in those case management positions. Health service coordinators, case management extenders or assistants enhance patient resource linkage. These roles also support case managers and promote their efficiency. Then, watch over-reliance on technology. Risk stratification software and EHR checklists identifying clients who are predisposed to the social determinants are beneficial to prioritize work. Yet those checklists alone don't interview, intervene with, refer, and advocate for patients. This leads me to the next point. Assure any case managers hired are credentialed, plus trained on models of interviewing and assessment, such as CMS's health-related social needs tool, the hunger vital signs, and the ABCs of interviewing. Next, possess community organization expertise to build partnership with agencies. There's no cookie-cutter response to social determinants program development, as each community is distinct. Next up, grant writing to access new revenue streams is critical. The newest initiatives all stem from these collaborations, as those providing transportation, food and medication delivery, housing, and mental health access, like was advertised last week through Vanderbilt all reduce major gaps in service provision. Finally, walk in knowing the organization's target population needs. This information is readily available through websites like those for county health rankings and city health dashboards, to name a few. Social determinants data is everywhere. Use it. Knowing what to address is a must. Next week's broadcast will be from the annual Case Management Society of America conference in Las Vegas, where the social determinants will be a major theme. Until then, take care all. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen, very much. That was consultant author Ellen Fink-Sandwick. By the way, Ellen has a new book on the subject called Social Determinants of Health, Case Management's New Frontier. Over the last few weeks, the White House and both the House and the Senate have taken steps to prevent patients from being caught in the middle of surprise medical billing. Here now to report our lead story is former CMS official Matthew Albright. So good morning, Matthew. Matthew, what's the update on these proposals from both the House and the Senate? 
Good morning, Chuck. Well, it, it has been an active few weeks on the surprise balance billing front. Chuck, it, it's a little bit like when my kids get on the phone with their grandmother. They're all excited and talking over each other about what they did that week, right? That's what we're seeing in Washington on this issue. So what I'd like to do this morning is try and clear through all the noise and pinpoint where we all should be looking in terms of next steps on the issue. Right now, we see two significant proposals coming out of the Senate and three significant proposals coming out of the House. While the White House has been holding sit downs and press conferences on the issue, nothing official has come from them yet. Though we expect an executive order any day now on healthcare costs that may include some balanced billing provisions. Again, for the most part, all of these proposals, House, Senate, White House, represent a true, I want to say, uh, summer miracle, Chuck, a rare kumbaya moment in Washington. It's across political parties and industry sectors in that they all protect patients from surprise balance billing in out-of-network emergency situations and in most non-emergency out-of-network situations where the patient didn't have a choice or give consent. From there, however, the five bills disagree in terms of how or how much they propose the provider be reimbursed, right? So the argument now is on what the reimbursement rate or process should be. We're, we're far from guessing where this will land, but let's look at where the ball is now. Any bill has to get through the Senate's Health Education and Labor Committee or HELP Committee. And the HELP Committee has their own bill that they have introduced, which actually reflects the diverse approaches in all the other bills that have been put forth. So at least in terms of next steps, don't think about any of the other bills or what the White House is saying. Keep your eye on what the Senate HELP Committee decides to ultimately put in their bill when they push to get it out of committee later this summer. The HELP Committee is looking for input on three reimbursement options. And from these three, and the eternal words of the Highlander, there can be only one. First option is requiring in-network hospitals to charge in-network rates, regardless if any out-of-network providers were used. Second option allows the payer and the provider to work out and agree upon a rate by themselves. If that fails, there's arbitration. Third option is similar to the first option. Provider must accept the in-network reimbursement rate as payment in full. So three options, two of which say basically that the provider will be paid in-network rates, and the other that says that the provider and payer get to come to their own agreement on a reimbursement rate. The HELP Committee is accepting input from industry on these three options this week. They'll move quickly to make a decision, then they hope to get a bill passed out of committee later this summer. So now if this were a basketball game, we're really only at about halftime. Even if and when a bill comes out of the HELP committee, it may find some arguments from other senators or from the House, depending on how it is written. In particular, Representatives Paul Ruiz and Phil Rowe have led a group of physician lawmakers to develop their own proposal for surprise balance bills, which goes along with the approach that allows payers and providers to come to agreement by themselves without a government set reimbursement rate. As your listeners are probably aware, that option and Ruiz and Rowe's proposal has the support of many provider associations. So stay tuned to this dial, Chuck. More to come.
Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous, and he is the former director of the Administrative Simplification Group at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And be sure to read my interview with Matthew Albright. It's in this Thursday's edition of the Rack Monitor. And now it's time for the Monday Q&A, and once again, here is David Glazer. Thanks, Chuck. Uh, we've got a question for you, Nicole. A listener wants to know, hey, for TPE audits, my understanding is that the determination to reopen a claim isn't appealable. How do you recommend addressing the issue you raised? So I think this is a two-part question, one, in whether or not reopening a claim is appealable. And my answer to that is that any adverse decision in a TPE audit is going to be appealable. The decision to appeal, however, is going to be whether it is financially sound for you to bring that issue on an appeal. So, for example, if that is the only issue, that's the only adverse issue, you may not want to appeal. But if you've got multiple adverse issues, you will want to appeal. And yes, all adverse decisions are appealable. The other portion of that question is, I believe, addressing the issue as to how to so the selection process, whether you can challenge that. And my answer is you can absolutely challenge the selection process as well. It's also an adverse determination that can be brought up on appeal. The appeal process is the same for all other audits. Chuck, I think we may look at that one a little bit more in the future, and I will turn it back to you. Thanks very much, and thank you, Nicole. Be sure to read Nicole's article on this very important subject. It's coming up in Thursday's edition of the Rack Monitor News. And that is going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Alan Fink, Sam Dick, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Mary Inman calling in live from London, and our special guest, Matthew Albright. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher. You can listen to us on Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And until Monday, next Monday, that is, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. <laughs>